Well, we turn now to the first letter of John as we continue our series here in the first letter of John. Last week we uh, began our series and looked at verses 1 through 4. And today we'll pick back up in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. If you have your pew Bible, you could find that on page 1,210 of your pew Bible, 1,210. So this is 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Give our attention to the reading of God's word. The Apostle John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. May he write this word on our hearts as we meditate upon it together this evening. Uh, The famous philosopher Plato once said this. He said, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is is when men are afraid of the light. You know, from the earliest of years, the concepts of light and darkness are fundamental to our experience as human beings, right? From childhood, we know what it's like to be nervous about the dark, right? Have you ever flicked off the lights in the hallway and scurried off to your room quickly because you were nervous about the dark? Have you ever walked home extra quickly down a dark street or a dark alley because you were nervous about the dark? We all understand what it means to be afraid of the dark, don't we? But as Plato said, why would men be afraid of the light? As we see here in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through the end of the chapter, we see because the light of God exposes us. The light of God shines upon us. It could be uncomfortable as God begins to peel back the onion layers of our hearts and reveal some of the depths of the darkness that is in us. But we see, according to John, uh, this is the way to live. Every single human being is living on one of two paths, according to the word of God. There are those who are living in the light of God's presence, and there are those living in the darkness of sin. And what characterizes these two paths? That's going to be our primary meditation. And again, John is writing this letter to us, the church, so that we might know the joy of fellowship with God as we walk in the light. And so we're going to think about what that looks like today. What does it actually mean to walk in the light? What does it mean to walk in the light of Jesus? How can we have fellowship with God who is light when so much darkness still dwells in our hearts? John is going to answer these questions for us 
this evening from this word. Uh, But before we come into these two ways of life, of light and darkness, John first tells us the nature of God. And actually, the nature of God, the character of God, uh, is kind of like the bread of the sandwich of this text. The nature of God kind of bookends this portion of the light and the darkness. And so first look at verse 1, and we see there God reminding us uh, that he is light. God is light. In John's letter, there's various uh, God is statements. God is love. God is faithful. God is just. But here John tells us that God is light. What does that mean? God is light. Well, in one area, we could say that God is light means he is totally different to us. He is totally other as God. How? He is distinct from us as the great creator. In his very being, he is different from us. He is not like us. As we sang from Psalm 139, God is omniscient. He knows all things at all times. He has never had to grow in his understanding. We are people who are human beings who have to grow in our knowledge tomorrow. Well, maybe not tomorrow because it's Martin Luther King Day, but many of us have to go to school right this weekend and grow in our understanding of different subjects, right? When you're watching TV or watching a cartoon kids, sometimes when someone has an idea, what happens? Like a little light bulb shines on over their head, right? It, it is kind of an expression of, you know, I have an idea. The lights have come on. We have grown in our understanding. But God knows all things at all times. He is the very source of light and life. Psalm 136, verse 9, again, for with you there is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. This is an important truth, but this is not actually John's primarily uh, concern here when he's talking about God is light. But this is what he means by this statement. God is light in that he is morally or ethically different from us. Here, when John says God is light, he is speaking about his absolute moral purity, that in God there is no darkness at all. Literally in the Greek, it's and darkness in him. No, there is none at all. Right in Greek, double negatives are okay. They're used for emphasis to show something. And here John is saying in God, no, there is no darkness at all. You know, our son that we haven't seen much of in the last couple of weeks is a bright star. But even our sun has some dark sunspots that you could observe. But with God, there are no blemishes. There are no dark spots. He is absolutely totally pure and holy. And this is important for us to remember, beloved, for when it comes to us, when it comes to everything other than God, there is darkness. In us, there is evil. In us, there is mixed intentions. In us, there is sin. But there's not even a hint of these things in God. And that is important because that means God cannot sin against you. He cannot wrong his people. We can't say that about ourselves. We are sincere at times in our efforts and our devotion to God and our in our ways that we interact with others. But all of our motives and all of our worship is mixed with our sin. But in God, there are no mixed motives. There is no darkness at all. There's no yin and yang relationship within his being. There's no eternal conflict of light and darkness within him. No, God is light. 
He is the God who created life in the beginning. And when we come to the new creation in glory, God himself will be the very source of the light of that new creation that we are headed to do. God is light. You see, for the Apostle John, this is not just mere theology that he wants to give to us about who God is, but for John, all theology is practical. Who God is forms the basis of how we are to live. And now we come to our second point, really the nature of our walk with God. And here we see, don't we, these two ways of living. These two ways of living. It's very parallel to what we heard this morning from Psalm 1. Those two walks of life. Here we see a contrast of walks. There's a unique structure here in this text. There's five statements. There's a, a negative, then a positive, then a negative, then a positive, then a negative, and a positive statement. Or it ends on a negative statement. And each begins with this conditional if, right? And in order to just be a little more clear, I'm going to group all of the negative statements together and first meditate on what it looks like to walk in the darkness. So as we group these statements together, what does it look like for someone to walk in darkness? Look at verse 6. One of the characteristics of walking in darkness is hypocrisy, verse 6. If we say with our words, right, we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie. and We do not practice the truth, right? Hypocrisy is to say one thing, but to live the opposite way. Now, why were some doing this in John's day? Again, remember those heresies that I brought up last time? Gnosticism, docetism. Part of the root of these false teachings said that when it comes to knowledge of God, it's not an ongoing process that you have, but it's this one-time mystical experience of the divine. That God kind of gives you this immediate knowledge, a kind of enlightenment, And how you live after that particular moment is not as important. But John is saying, no, instead, uh, if you you are a true Christian, it's not a one-time process of knowing God or being enlightened, but you grow in God. John here speaks of practicing the truth, right? He says, "If if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and notice we do not practice the truth. Literally, we do not do the truth. We're not putting the truth into practice. Uh, This is kind of an odd phrase, but it's rooted in the Old Testament. Uh, To do the truth is really a, a Hebrew idiom that's connected with showing covenant loyalty to God, covenant fidelity to God. Genesis 32, verse 10, Jacob says to God, I am not worthy of all of the fidelity or the loyalty or faithfulness that you have shown towards your servant. I am not worthy for how you have been so faithful to me. John is saying those in darkness are not putting into practice the truth. Another thing that characterizes those who walk in darkness, verse 8, is that they minimize sin. They say we have no sin. Right? They were not saying that they never sin, but that since they've come to know God, they no longer sin. Again, some in John's day believed that once you got this immediate knowledge of God, you were actually spiritually elevated in such a way that you were now unable to sin. This is what is called sometimes in theology Christian perfectionism. 
It's taught in the old, old Methodist and Pentecostal traditions, teaching that a believer in this life can be fully sanctified. Right? I wish we, we could, right? I think some of us wish that was the truth, but it's not. We may not hold to this with our own confession, but we too, even as Christians who maybe have uh, some theological categories, we too could also excuse our sins, right? We can justify our bad behavior. We can compare ourselves with other people and say, at least I'm not like that. We could focus on the sins of others, or we could think that sanctification means that we slowly wean ourselves off of Jesus. We too can minimize sin. A third characteristic of those who walk in darkness is that they misrepresent God. Verse 10. Really, this is the conclusion. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, a liar, and his word is not in us. If we're walking in darkness, we're not only deceiving ourselves, but we're making God a liar because his word says the opposite of these things. Well, in contrast to this, beloved, we see a different way to live. What characterizes those who walk in the light? Well, verse 7, we see that those who walk in the light are honest and open before God. They don't try to hide from him. We come to recognize that if God knows all things, if he is light and he sees all things, then we are to invite him to shine his light upon our lives. We're to say with David in Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. But what characterizes those who uh, walk in the light is that they walk in the truth of God's word. They walk in the truth of God's word. People who walk in the light are no longer trying to follow the fallen counsel of their own sinful hearts or the fallen counsel of worldly advisors, but they recognize that their hearts are not always a faithful gauge of what is right, so they follow Christ, learning to obey all that he has commanded. And one key aspect of walking in the light that John highlights here in verse 9 is this. Those who walk in the light confess their sins. Those who walk in the light confess their sins. They don't say, I have no sin. I don't try to minimize sin. But those who walk in the light confess their sins. What does it mean to confess our sins? Uh, To confess means that we agree with something. Right? In confession, we agree with what God says of us. In confession, we don't excuse ourselves, we don't justify ourselves, we don't compare ourselves to other people, but we agree in confession, we agree with God concerning what he says about us, concerning his judgment. Sometimes we could have too great a view of our own righteousness and how well we're doing, and too low a view of God's holiness. But in confession, we say, no, we agree with God's assessment, and we admit to him our wrongdoings and thought, word, and deed. And some scholars highlight how John might actually be highlighting here a public confession. Uh, In the Didache, which is one of the earliest documents that we have uh, next to the New Testament, it's a document that speaks of Christian worship, the Didache. You can look it up. It says this in section 4. It says, In the congregation thou shalt confess thy transgressions, and thou shalt not betake to thyself to prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. 
Many times in the scriptures, you see confession of sin in the context of public worship or public settings. Right in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, you read of those who were coming to John the Baptist, going into those waters of baptism, and they were confessing their sins. In James chapter 5, verse 16, in the context of praying for the sick, people are urged to confess their sins to one another and to pray for each other so that they can be healed. We read in Acts 19, verse 18, how those in Ephesus confessed their sins publicly and then they burned their magical books when the ministry of Paul entered their city. This is why at church, it's important to take time to confess our sins to God. That's why we have that as part of our liturgy. It's not just simply something we do to check off a box or to go through the motions, but in confession as a congregation, we are saying we are a people who live simply by the grace and mercy of God. In confession, we're saying we are not better than other people in this world, but we are sinners who need Jesus. And as we even pray this evening in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to have this as part of our daily prayers. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When we live open lives before God in the light in this way, confessing our sins and looking to Christ, that's where God's grace meets us. Right? What does it look like to be a Christian? John is showing us here that those who are walking in the light, those who are Christians, are those who are embracing Jesus, confessing their sins, and receiving that promise that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Right? What happens when God saves someone? whether they're raised in the church or they come to know Jesus in a different way, what happens in their life? What does God begin to do? What was your experience? Well, if it was like me or like those who have come to know Jesus, right? God begins to shine his light in your life. He begins to show you your sin. He begins to show you how how you're living or what you're doing is actually an offense to him. Maybe at one point you didn't think it was that bad, but now you see it for what it is. It's sin. God shines the light. He turns the lights on, as it were, so he could see clearly. We see here that those who walk with Jesus are sensitive to their sin, confessing them and looking to Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, we read this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, sometimes when God comes in and he shines his light on all of those ugly crevices of our hearts, again, peeling back the onion layers, and we see ourselves for what we are at times, we could ask questions like, man, there are so many ugly stains on my life. How can God truly cleanse them? Maybe we say, God has cleansed me in the past, but but how can he do this again when I confess my sins? How can creatures of darkness like us who are sensitive to our sin struggles. How can we truly have fellowship with God? How can we come near to a God and hear that he delights in us? It's only through his incarnate son, the Lord Jesus, who said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And again, now we come back to the nature of God. We heard the nature of God, the first part, God is light. 
We've seen what characterizes these two walks of darkness and light. And then John points us to the nature of God again, verse 9. God is faithful and God is just. We can trust, you see, in the cleansing and forgiving power that is found in the gospel because of who God is. He is not only light, but he is faithful and he is just. When we say that God is faithful, we're saying God is faithful, meaning he is trustworthy to fulfill his commitments to his people. Right? He is faithful to his covenant promises. He is not like us and how we sometimes break our words. We sometimes break our commitments, don't we? We sometimes let people down. John is saying God is faithful in all of his ways. As we hear in the other parts of Scripture, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We see this in the Old Testament, the context of the golden calf, when Israel cheated on God, you might say, on their wedding night and were unfaithful to him. When Moses prayed and God answered his prayer, he said in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This means, beloved, that God is faithful to cleanse us again and again when we come to him in humble repentance. God is faithful to renew a right spirit within us. God is faithful to lift us up out of the waters when we're like Peter and we take our eyes off of Jesus and we're sinking in the waters of life again, sinking in the waters of despair in our own sin. God is faithful to lift us out. God is faithful to renew our hope. He's faithful to bring us home all the way to glory. God is a faithful God to his people. He simply cannot give up on his people. John says, God is faithful and God is just. God is just to actually forgive those who trust in Christ. Apart from Jesus, God's justice would mean simply that he would punish us for our sins. If there was no gospel, God's justice would simply mean we get what we deserve because of our sin. Right? If God simply overlooks sin, he would not be a loving God. Imagine if someone committed a a horrible crime against your family. God forbid something heinous would ever happen to you. But imagine if something horrible happened to one of your family members. And imagine if all of the evidence was laid before a judge and this person was captured and, and all the things were put before the people. And imagine if the jury said, yes, we say this man is guilty. But imagine if the judge at the end of all that said, you know what? I'm actually a really loving judge. I'm just going to let this person go free because I'm really loving. How would that make you feel if that happened in the courtroom? Right? You would cry out for justice. That judge would not be good or loving or just. They would be evil, wouldn't they? John is telling us God is just. He can't simply overlook sin and dismiss it. And so how can God, who is just, forgive us and have fellowship with us? Again, the answer is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus is not simply a place where God's love is poured out, although it is. It's also the place where God's holiness and God's perfect justice was satisfied. 
When Jesus hung there on the cross, as all of our sins were laid upon him, the darkness fell upon him, the light of the world, and he suffered the justice of God in our place. I love the old hymn, Here is Love. And one of the lines goes like this. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. You see, at the cross, Justice was satisfied as Jesus took upon our debt, our sin, and paid them in full. This is what we heard at Christmas, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Because of the cross, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith In Jesus, Romans 3. And so what does that mean practically for you? It means that if we trust in Jesus, God would actually be unjust to withhold forgiveness when we came to him in humble repentance, when we confessed our sins. Right In the court of law, there's something called double jeopardy. It means if you've paid the penalty for a crime, you can't be tried for that same exact crime and pay it again because the debt's been paid, right? Well, beloved, when we confess our sins to God, the Lord cancels our debts completely because Jesus said at the cross, it is finished, it's paid in full. All of our debts, past, present, and future, satisfied by the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. If we don't confess our sins, if we refuse to come in the light, if we do not trust in Jesus, then we will have to pay for our sin. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is actually just to forgive us of our sins. As St. Anselm put it, truly then, you are merciful because you are just. Practically, beloved, this also means that God has made it possible for you to enjoy fellowship with him. The promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verse 34 is this, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Sin, beloved, it's not only a debt, but it's also a defilement that keeps us from intimacy with God. Remember what Isaiah said when he came into contact with the God who is light and holy. He said in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He recognized sin was a defilement that kept him from God. But what did God do? He cleansed Isaiah from one of those burning coals from the altar. He took away his sin so that he could have fellowship with God. And that's what the gospel does, beloved. It not only satisfies the debt, but it also takes away the defilement that kept you from God. The defilement that kept us from true worship, Jesus has taken away. And so this is good news for you today. This is good news for me. The word of God tells us here, no matter how many stains are upon your life, John says the blood of Jesus is sufficient and it's powerful enough 
to cleanse you from what? All unrighteousness. Not just some sins, but all unrighteousness. Doesn't matter what your sin struggle is today. Doesn't matter if it's the hundredth or thousandth time you've come before God and said, Lord, forgive me. Help me to walk by faith in a renewed spirit with fellowship and trust in Christ. Doesn't matter. God is faithful and he's just to forgive you and to cleanse you when you take hold of Christ. We long for that day when we will be fully clean in heaven. Even today, as long as we live, God is faithful to daily cleanse us as we come to him. Apostle John said in John 4, John 1 verse 4 of Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so, beloved, this week, may we walk in the light as God is in the light. Because in the light, there is forgiveness of sins. In the light, there is freedom from that grip of sin, the power of sin. Most important, in the light, there is fellowship with God. Forgiveness, freedom, and fellowship for all who walk in the light. So I leave you with the words of Paul who said to the church in Ephesians 5 verse 14, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Amen.